1: Thank you, Brian Sullivan. I'm Kelly Evans. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. 850,000 new jobs and wages on the rise. So why are bond yields falling again on this great job support? We will tell you why and look at the stocks that could hurt if wages continue their climb. Plus, it's Branson versus Bezos in the space race. Richard Branson is set to be on board a Virgin Galactic space flight next Sunday. The stock soaring to the moon or maybe landing in the stars. Plus, why now is a good time to drive for Uber or mine for Bitcoin, but is it the best time for Bezos to step away as CEO of Amazon? It's all coming up in rapid fire, but we begin with the stock reaction to today's job support. Christina Partsenevolis has those numbers. Christina? It is, it's been a banner week for markets, and today is
2: no different. The tech-heavy Nasdaq hit a new high along with the S&P 500 after a strong jobs Report the Russell, though, that you're seeing on your screen right now, down almost a one percent, is the only major index lower for the week, and we know Kelly will get into the bond yield, so I'll leave that for later. Growth, though, taking charge today after trailing slightly over the past two business days. So tech is the leader on the board, up 1%. And that's primarily due to software. And then you've got consumer staples, led by HBC and grocers. And then last but not least, consum- or communication services. I always say con- con- like consumer. But uh, that's up on gains. And that's primarily because of Alphabet, the parent of Google, which we're going to show you right now. That stock is climbing higher. You have Bernstein. Look, up 2%. Bernstein named Google, or Alphabet, the tech giant, at a top pick, actually, for the second half, saying the shares are cheap at $2,498. Uh, Um, We're talking about valuation, though. And we just got some breaking news just within the past hour. The Federal Trade Commission is charging Broadcom with illegal monopolization in the semiconductor market, specifically for chips used in television and broadband services. The FTC stating, quote, America has a monopoly problem. Broadband, though, look, not even a percent down.
1: Incredible. And by the yeah. way, communication services has eight syllables, and that is too many. I, <laughs> I want to say community services. Secretary. I think I said that once with you, community <laughs> services, communication services. I don't know. It needs a new name. Yeah. Christina, thanks. Sorry. Christina Parts <laughs> and Evelyn. The June employment report stronger than expected with most of the gains in leisure and hospitality. And as the reopening gathers strength, in fact, Bank of America reported a 19% jump in credit card spending over a two-year period for the week ending June 26. Now, most of this increased spending is going to travel, entertainment and dining out, and the hiring figures bear that out. So is it full speed ahead for the reopening or could the Delta variant of COVID spoil the rebound? Joining me now is Michelle Meyer. She's head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Global Research. Michelle, it's great to have you here. And I think that, you know, just as we're getting to a breakout point in the labor market and the economy, Do you think there's any signs yet of this Delta variant slowing things down? Or do you think the economy is going to kind of move past it and move through it and not be phased this time around?
3: Yeah. Hey, Kelly. Um, So, you know, I think so far the answer is no, not really. I mean, certainly not in the data flow. What we're seeing is pretty extraordinary pace of activity in all things services activity. So, you know, travel, restaurants, um, entertainment. Um, consumers are out engaging, they're spending, and those businesses are trying to ramp up to accommodate such strong demand. And that's what we're seeing in the data. The card data is showing the spending and the labor market data is showing businesses trying to expand and there's still more room to go. Now, as you know, the risk is, of course, that there could be some pullback if the Delta variant creates uh, a, a, a turn higher in virus cases, which ultimately leads to hospitalizations, which gets consumers to change their behavior. So that is an outstanding risk. But at the moment, it's not showing up in the data flow.
1: So let's talk about the strength in the economy, the strength in the stock market, and the fact that bond yields are dropping, Michelle. A lot of people say it's because the labor market is finally showing gains in leisure and hospitality. The hardest hit COVID sectors are catching back up to everybody else. They're saying that means the Fed is going to taper and that tightening is actually flattening the yield curve and dropping bond yields. Do you think that makes sense?
3: Well, look, I think we have to consider the the two um, levers that the Fed pulls quite differently. Um, Yes, I think the Fed is setting up to taper. They're making progress on the labor market. The inflation data looks uh, clearly a lot stronger. Um, And they've been laying the groundwork for tapering. So our sense is they will go ahead and announce the plan in September. Shortly after that, they'll go ahead and and taper. But even if they taper, even if they scale back on asset purchases, they're still going to be actively engaged in the markets in terms of expanding their balance sheet, likely until the fall of next year in an economy that will have closed the output gap and already start overheating. So it's still a very accommodative Federal Reserve, even with those steps towards tapering. And then the other lever, interest rate hikes, that I think they're still far from pulling. Um, Our sense is that we're looking at 2023, second half of 2023 before the Fed feels comfortable starting to hike interest rates. And that's why I think the bond market is a little bit... you know, uh, uh, unsettled, sure. you know, they can kind of price in the taper, but the hiking, you know, they, it seems to be the sense of wanting to pull forward rate hikes. And I don't think the Fed is giving any indication that's 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 the sense.
1: I've been surprised at some of the hawkish rhetoric that we've heard from Fed officials since the last yeah. meeting, because if they were concerned that the market saw the dots and thought and reacted too hawkishly, they certainly had a chance to walk that back. And it feels, if anything, like they've doubled down. Why do you think that is? And is this very drop in bond yields what the Fed wants? <laughs>
3: Yeah. Well, look, we have a divided committee. I mean, the Federal Reserve is not all united in terms of this new framework and how to actually implement that new framework. And you have a number of hawks that have been vocal. Um, Seven FOMC officials were looking for hikes to start in 2022, and they've been on the tapes talking about the rationale for that. Um, But you have a large part of the committee, particularly that core of the committee, that we believe is still highly committed to the new framework and making sure that they generate Um, an average of 2% inflation, this broad-based labor market recovery, all the things that they've been talking about, which, by the way, they're accomplishing. Um, And they will want to continue to accomplish that. And they don't want to kind of, you know, short-circuit the recovery now by by talking hawkishly or or starting to, you know, look towards higher interest rates. So um, I think part of the challenge is that there is a divided committee, and that makes it difficult for communication. In terms of what the Fed wants, Kelly, to your point about the level of interest rates, Um, No, I don't think the Fed wants the market to be pulling forward rate hikes. I don't think the Fed wants the market to be doubting their commitment to higher inflation. Um, And that will be something that they'll have to reset and hope (laughs) that the data allows them to Uh, adjust market expectations on that
1: front. So interesting. All right, we will continue the chat now. Uh, Michelle, thank you very, very much for setting it up for us. Michelle Meyer with Bank of America. As stocks take today's report in stride as a bullish sign for the economy, the NASDAQ and S&P 500 are hitting record highs again. So let's talk about the drop in bond yields, the flatter yield curve, and whether this is what the Fed wants. Joining me are Kamal Shrikumar, the president of Shrikumar Global Strategies, and Art Hogan, the chief market strategist at National Securities. Welcome to both of you. Uh, I'll begin with you, because I think, you know, Michelle just spoke of a divided Fed. I think if you were on the Fed, you'd be on the side of the hawks. So, you know, what changed, Sri? Because I think for years we were talking to you about interest rates potentially plunging and going, you know, 10-year almost going to zero. Now your concern is on, you know, the, the flip side of things, right?
4: Right. Uh, Kelly, for so many years I was uh, t- looking at the bond yields going down because I didn't see inflation pick up. Despite the Trump tax cuts, and I didn't expect growth to pick up to a significant extent, and that was going against the consensus. That's how it worked out, with the ten-year yield going below two percent and going well below even 150. What changed was at the beginning of this year when we had the Senate runoff elections for Georgia, giving all three branches of government in the Democratic hands, with a lot of increase in spending coming. At the same time, you have a close working relationship between Chairman Powell and Treasury Secretary Yellen, which again is going to make for a significant monetary expansion. So price increases go from the transitory phase to a permanent phase, Kelly, are uh, only with the oxygen provided to them by continued money growth, and that is going to come. It is not going to go away anytime soon. Second, the Fed has no more foresight into whether inflation is transitory or permanent than those of us have on the market side. And they are looking for a much delayed uh, cutback, if at all. And why are bond yields falling? Because for the last 10 or 11 years, we have had a very benign inflation environment. For the last three decades, we have had a bond rally so the market says they are not going to give up on that. They believe in the chairman. Okay. he will see them through, and that's the problem here.
1: Art, why do you think bond yields are acting the way that they are? And, and to put it differently, for investors, we were speaking yesterday about a CNBC survey that showed that financials are one of the preferred investments for the back half of the year. But in there is this expectation that interest rates are going to rise, and when people come on, you know, I think it was Goldman or Morgan Stanley the other day that said, "Yes, we like the financials. We think rates are going up to two percent and so forth." Well. You know, there's so much that depends on whether that actually is true this time or not. Why do you think yields are where they are?
5: I think a couple of reasons. I think if you look at the demographic uh, of the U.S. population, you've got a lot of people that are forced into the uh, the low-yielding U.S. tenure, right? So the fixed-income market is driven by the second-largest population in the United States. Secondly, if you look at the end of the first quarter, entering the second quarter, Japan actually became a net buyer of U.S. Treasuries after being a net seller for the better part of six months. So I think that's another dynamic that's going in. And then I also think it's the Fed's communication strategies, You know, talking about the fact that they're eventually going to get to a place where they're gonna start tapering. I think Michelle was right, they probably announced this um in september they'd probably start executing at the end of the year but remember if that balance sheet let's say they complete this taper in a 12-month period that balance sheet's going to remain the same size for a while so they'll still be active in the open market keeping the balance sheet the same size reinvesting uh the runoff and I, i think that's what's sort of kept the uh the action in the um, US tenure at bay. And I also think it is because we're starting to see some rollover in commodity prices, right? When you start being hyper concerned about inflation and then lumber all of a sudden is down 47% from its peak and you're seeing a rollover in copper, you're seeing a rollover in iron ore. I think that's that supply response we've been waiting for. So I think that the same thing will be true for things like wages. I think that if you look at the month-over-month numbers from today's report, you saw there's deceleration in that month-over-month increase in wages. And I think that continues.
1: you're almost kind of making the argument for for the growth trade. The value trade is... Wages are going to go up, you know, the commodity prices are going up, financials are going to go up. You like financials, you like energy, you like industrials and materials. Why do you like all of these sectors, even if you're describing wage pressures and some of these inflation dynamics is basically transitory?
5: That's such a great question, Kelly. I think you can have both, right? We'd like to have a barbell approach. We want you to have growth on one side of that. We want you to express that thematic ideas like 5G and cloud computing, cloud security. On the other side of that, we want you to have exposure to cyclicals because we definitely think the economy is improving. We think the cyclicality uh, will will still be with us throughout the course of the year. If you went back to the March 2020 lows of of last year and then track both growth and cyclicality, they're almost exactly the same. They've just had six months rotations, right? The first six months was all about growth. The next six months was all about cyclicality as we started to get better news on vaccines and and technology got expensive. This year has been a mirror image of that. We're seeing the same kind of action. We have these rotations, and I think that will continue for the year. So you want to stay balanced.
1: All right, Shreeb, as we go, so you'd be a seller of treasuries here. What do you think the next stop is for yields?
4: My expectation is that the Treasury yields are headed up. The question is not knowing exactly when that is going to happen. You may have a situation with three, four months of high inflation as we approach the fourth quarter. The markets may say, that's enough. We are not going to trust the Fed anymore, and that is going to cause them to go up. And again, as Brian Sullivan said very well in the hour before, Kelly, You have the OPEC meeting right now, and within the next couple of hours, we may find out if oil production is going to stay fixed because they can't reach an agreement. And if you have oil prices rise from $75 to $100 in quick session, everybody then will say inflation is going to be permanent and bond yields surge as a result of that.
1: We'll see. All right, Kumar, Art Hogan, gentlemen, thank you for joining me on this Friday to talk through the jobs report and the market's reaction. Meanwhile, check out shares of Didi moving lower today after China announced a cybersecurity review of the newly public ride-hailing company. It could have done it a couple days ago. Uh, Didi says it plans to fully cooperate during the review, but the shares are down more than 8%. They priced at 17. They're trading just under 15 right now. Eunice Yun is in Beijing with the very latest on this story for us. Eunice.
6: Thanks, Kelly. Well, tech folks tonight are describing this investigation as coming out of left field. Uh, The cyber security regulators or the cyber regulator in a short online statement said that the review was meant to guard against national data security risks, uphold public interest and protect national security. And it's that last point that is really uh, being interpreted here as a serious one because the government cited the national security law, so it made that effort. Now, during the probe, Didi will be barred from registering new users. And in the short term, this is being viewed as not particularly particularly material for the business uh, because Didi already has 90% of the ride-hailing Uh, market. However, if the investigation continues to drag on, then it could potentially um, weigh on the business. Now, uh, the big question that people have here is about the timing of this announcement Um, because in the short statement, the government didn't explain what the motivations are, but there's been a lot of uh, buzz that this could potentially be because Beijing was unhappy with the fact that the IPO was timed right around the 100th anniversary and the celebrations of the Communist Party's founding. So um, this could potentially be a political play. And, uh, you know, given that it's China, not necessarily something that would be um, something that you wouldn't see here.
1: Kelly? Eunice, what do you think the next move is? I mean, is it just a way? It often feels like anytime a Chinese company is in the spotlight, like the leadership finds a way of saying, just so everyone's clear, you report to us.
6: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, the backdrop of all of this is that there is a crackdown going on where the uh, government has been targeting China's big tech. A lot of that from Beijing's perspective and, and uh, their explanation is because they want to be able to protect consumers' data Um, uh, you know, Didi has been collecting uh, mobility data in real time uh, here in China, as well as potentially overseas. And so uh, because of that, this could be just part of that sweep. Now, I also heard another theory that was um, a little interesting. And then that is that potentially uh, Beijing wants to uh, really showcase that Chinese data might not be safe from the U.S. (laughs) now that Didi has been listed in the United States, and so this could be a way to message back home uh, some of the issues that uh, the kind of the, the larger geopolitical fight that the U.S. and China are having yes. um, over data and reciprocity.
1: Speculation is often the only choice we have uh, with moves like this and announcements like these. Eunice, we really appreciate your reporting uh, late in the hours there. Eunice Yun in Beijing. Back at home, IBM stock is moving lower today after the company announced President Jim Whitehurst will step down. Less than two years after he joined through the Red Hat acquisition, John Fort spoke with IBM CEO, which shares John are down four and a half percent.
7: Yeah, and they actually moved lower after we had our report this morning uh, that this had been announced. I was able to get on the phone with Arvind Krishna, the CEO, and get some context here. It certainly uh, clarified... the way I think about it. Now, Jim Whitehurst has in a sense been in this position for three years and you know how these contract things work when somebody uh, comes on board in that period of time Arvind was named CEO. He's since been named chairman and has been putting putting leadership in place. Now, Whitehurst, a very well regarded executive. He could be a CEO a lot of places. He has options on what he wants to do. And Arvind told me there are things that Jim wants to do, but he is going to spend a year now uh, as an advisor, said that Jim's been incredibly gracious and effective over the past three years and said that uh, he would have been glad for Jim Whitehurst to stay as well. Now, this is important where Red Hat is concerned. Some people might worry, here's a guy who came in with the Red Hat acquisition. Does this mean that something is afoot with uh, Red Hat? Well, Arvind told me that Paul Cormier, who's been running Red Hat as CEO, he's a 20-year veteran of that company, now part of IBM, he is staying. He's not going anywhere, and the work within IBM with Red Hat continues to go on a pace. And then with the other uh, executive changes, uh, he, I asked him to describe what he was uh, going for there. And he talked about how this group is execution-focused, operationally intense, and technologically led in go-to-market, in that sales motion. Sometimes you you don't always have somebody who's an engineer who's technologically minded in a sales role, but if you look at uh, Rob Thomas, who now is in that head go-to-market role, very much somebody who's been leading technology organizations. So that is IBM's uh, perspective. Explanation, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, of what has happened with these changes here.
1: The shares are a little bit off the lows as you describe this. The company is splitting up soon, isn't it?
7: Yes. It is, into, uh, I'm forgetting right now, the name that they chose. Globe. It's a very unique name yeah. <laughs> uh, for, for the unit that they're spinning off, but that is happening. And we continue to see this transformation where Arvind is trying to keep core IBM focused on hybrid cloud, more nimble, more technologically led. Investors tend to like that when somebody who's technical is leading uh, not just in the engineering but also in the go-to-market when you're in a battle with technologically led companies like Amazon, like uh, Google, uh, you know, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I think for the company split, I think took a lot of people, maybe even internally by surprise. And then this announcement maybe adds to the anxiety around the direction. So perhaps explaining, hey, here's the vision and here's how this all fits into it.
7: Is, I was not surprised by the company split. Oh. Um, <laughs> IBM's big, right? Are Can they you- going to stay in the Dow? Uh, that I don't know. That's not my area, that's not my area. I'm more of a tech guy, but when you've got areas that are faster growing, right, and we see this all the time, areas that are faster growing, but perhaps lower revenue, higher margin, you wanna highlight those, you start thinking, well, are there older businesses that are perhaps slower growth with different models, that we can put to the side so investors can see more of what we wanna highlight.
1: Fair enough. Again, IBM shares down about 4.3% on all this news today. We'll see you again in a moment in rapid fire. John, for now, thank you very, very much. John Fort with the latest there on Big Blue. Coming up, the billionaire space race between Branson and Bezos is coming down to the wire with Virgin Galactic announcing that Branson will join its next space flight next Sunday. Virgin shares are jumping on the news, though well off the session highs. We'll bring you all the details on his long awaited trip and what it means for Jeff Bezos Blue Origin as the billionaires' battle to be first. We're back in a moment.
8: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
0: Welcome back, shares of
1: Virgin Galactic are giving up a lot of their gains today after the company announced its founder, Sir Richard Branson, is joining the crew on its next space flight test on July 11th, that's next Sunday. We're up about 6% for the shares right now. Morgan Brennan spoke with Virgin Galactic CEO this morning and joins us with the latest. It's minute-by-minute these days on the billionaire space race.
9: Morgan? Oh oh my gosh, what a week it's been, right, Kelly? Well, a mission specialist that's on board the VSS Unity Spaceship in the cabin to test out the astronaut experience. That is what will be the job of Sir Richard Branson, plus his three crewmates, when they fly to the edge of space next Sunday from New Mexico. Now, given the fact that Branson was originally supposed to be on board, not this test flight, but the nearly identical one behind it, and since Virgin Galactic's direct competitor, Blue Origin, is flying its founder, Jeff Bezos, on July 20th, so just nine days later, I asked CEO Michael Cole-Glaser how this game plan materialized.
10: We originally had thought uh, we would maybe rehearse uh, and have somebody stand in for Richard just to kind of show what would be going on. Uh, We realized most of that training's done on the ground and so we had a chance to say Richard, you could go on either of these two flights, which would you prefer? You can kind of imagine what he had to say back and uh, he's excited to go now that it's ready.
9: Cole Glazer also adamantly saying that the Bezos Blue Origin launch plans had nothing to do with this, quote, absolutely not, that despite the media headlines, quote, we only fly when we've assessed all of the data and we are safe to fly and ready to fly. And getting that as Virgin Galactic shifts from technical tests after that successful May flight to ones that are now with this focused on the customer experience. So who better than Branson to represent those future astronauts, according to Cole Glazier? Including this trip, we've got three more flights until the launch of commercial space for Virgin Galactic. So if all goes according to plan, Cole Glaser saying today that ticket sales are poised to open back up as soon as later this summer. And of course, for the investors in the stock, that is going to be a key financial moment, especially given the fact that we've seen these shares run up so dramatically. And this is still very much, Kelly, a pre-revenue company.
1: Is it, so it, if I understand this correctly, Blue Origin is saying it's going to go higher above like the astronaut line or what have you?
9: Oh, yeah. So that so that's been we're getting real space nerdy here, Um, but that's been one of the things that's been going on back and forth between these companies. So they're both suborbital space systems. They're both competing with each other for these future paying passengers. Um, That being said, there's different processes here, not only in terms of how they launch and how long uh, those flights actually are, Mm -hmm. but also in terms of how high they go. So Blue Origin goes above the so-called Carmen line, which is the globally internationally recognized start of space. Virgin Galactic is just below it at what's called the astronaut line, which means it's recognized by the U.S. You get your U.S. astronaut wings. Um, so some differences there in terms of altitudes. I have a feeling we're not done with that debate either. No, no. Both of I, those I, I, companies going back and forth about those details. I love it. A little it, it, space shade, as I've been saying all day.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. What a, making Twitter fun again. Morgan, thank you. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Morgan Brennan on the space race for us. We're going to take a quick break, but coming up, Lordstown shares are sinking on a report that the DOJ is probing the company after an SEC inquiry. We've got the very latest, plus we'll look at the stocks that are most exposed to rising wages. Stay with us.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
1: Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's a check on markets. As we head into the long weekend, we are seeing a rally with the Dow just 30 points off its session highs. It's up about 150 points right now. It's the slight laggard. The S&P and Nasdaq are both up six-tenths of one percent right now. Uh, So we'll watch those again as we have no trading on Monday for the 4th of July holiday. Meanwhile, Lordstown down 10 percent on the DOJ, the Department of Justice probe, into this electric vehicle startup. They're down 8.5% today, just under $9.50 a share. They're already facing an inquiry by the SEC regarding claims that they misled investors. In fact, for more on the problems that are plaguing Lordstown, let's bring in our own Phil of for the latest. What do we know, Phil?
11: Kelly, we've confirmed that the Department of Justice is investigating Lordstown Motors. The investigation is being handled out of the DOJ's Manhattan offices. Now, we don't know specifically what the DOJ is investigating, but it's likely revolving around some of the claims that were made by prior executives about orders for the vehicle that uh, is at front and center with uh, Lordstown Motors, and it's this vehicle right here, the Endurance Electric Pickup Truck. That's the plant for Lordstown Motors in Northeast Ohio. That is the Endurance Electric Pickup Truck, some of the early models being built, and there it is, a prototype that uh, we've seen driven around a few times. The Lordstown Motors, uh, when we in reached out to them and we said, look, what do we you have a comment on this investigation from the DOJ? It said Lordstown Motors is committed to cooperating with any regulatory or governmental uh, investigations and inquiries. We look forward to closing this chapter so that our new leadership and entire dedicated team can focus solely on producing the first and best full size all electric pickup truck, the Lordstown Endurance. Remember, it's a little over two weeks ago. That Steve Burns, who was the CEO of Lordstown Motors, really one of the architects of putting this company together, was let go in part because of inaccuracies regarding statements made about orders or pre-orders for the endurance pickup truck. And back in March, he acknowledged to us on CNBC that some of the statements about orders, well, they really weren't orders for the truck. They were order actually indications of interest by prospective buyers, but certainly not firm orders. And that's at the heart of the SEC investigation as well. If you take a look at shares of Lordstown Motors over the last three months, remember, they not only have the DOJ investigation that they're dealing with, as well as the SEC investigation. So more questions surrounding Lordstown. Kelly?
1: All right, Phil, thank you very much. Our Phil bow with the latest there. Shares of Disney are also on the move right now. Let's bring in Julia Borson. Julia, what's happening?
12: Disney shares are moving lower on a report in the information that says that Disney Plus U.S. growth slowed sharply in the first half of 2021. This report citing internal data. just want to look at Disney shares now down about one percent. Now, this report says that Disney Plus had a little bit more than 110 million total subscribers late in Disney's third fiscal quarter. Um, now that's up from 104 million that the company reported for the quarter ending April 3rd. So this is on a report, um, and they, they do say in this information report, that most of the growth was in India and Latin America, and that's where the service has more recently rolled out. So we have not heard back from Disney on this. We've reached out to them for a comment. Disney does report its official numbers and its quarterly results, which are due out uh, at the beginning of August. Guys, back over to you. All
1: right, Julia, thank you very much. Julia Borson with the Disney News. Let's get over to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update more
12: generally. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. We begin in Nashville, where a black family is expressing outrage over a plea deal for a white police officer charged with fatally shooting 25-year-old Daniel Hamrick. In that deal, the officer is pleading guilty to manslaughter and will get a three-year sentence. Hamrick's mother screaming at the judge to reject the agreement, but the judge approved it. Russia is reporting another record daily death toll from the pandemic. 679 COVID deaths were confirmed today. It's the fourth daily record in a row. Daily new infections have more than doubled over the last month. And India confirming more than 400,000 coronavirus deaths since the pandemic began. is now only the third country to reach that mark following the U.S. and Brazil. And on a far happier note, Americans hitting the roads and taking to the skies for Independence Day. 48 million Americans are expected to travel. That makes for the second busiest July 4th weekend ever, according to AAA. And tonight on the news, I'm going to be filling in for Shep, and we're going to have reports from around the country on the rise in travel, what has changed, and how to prepare. Kelly, I guarantee it's going to be a great show. Lots of news. (laughs) It is jam-packed. I can assure you. I'll send it back to you. It's hard to tease yourself. Uh, That was excellent. Rahel, thank you very, very much.
1: (laughs) Look forward to it this evening. Rahel Solomon. In the meantime, Uber ups its perks. GM goes for U.S. lithium, and Jeff Bezos last day as CEO. It's all coming up in rapid fire right after this. Welcome back. Let's put the rapid and rapid fire today. Catch up on a few stories you need to know about. And joining me to break down the headlines are John Fort, Michael Santoli, and Kate Rooney. Welcome, everybody. First up, the economy adding more jobs than expected last month, but companies are still complaining of labor shortages, including Uber. In their last earnings report, they had 22 percent fewer drivers from last year, contributing to a 27 percent increase in fares. They're desperately trying to hire more, offering incentives and training programs through a 250 million dollar driver incentive stimulus fund. But John, the stock is still struggling because the troubles it might have had already with its structure, let's call it, are exacerbated by the worker shortage right now.
7: Kelly, the economics here keep changing and it's baffling to me. So you've got the food delivery stuff, which was booming. They didn't seem to have too many troubles there, but moving people is different. And the incentives that they have to give now to get drivers on the road. I mean, I'm trying to figure out they they stopped the surge pay. They're still doing surge pricing and it's hard to get the drivers back out there. Plus, you got looming regulation. I don't know what the economics are going to be in two years.
1: What do you think, Michael?
8: Well, it's a good test of just how elastic demand is for Uber rides right at a higher price level. Also, I think a reminder that these are the businesses that were born of a period in this economy of slack, right? You only drive your car 5% of the time. Why not share it with us? You know, you only uh, you can work on the side. All that kind of stuff is now being uh, put to the test that a company that is only just now trying to plow toward a break even level financially.
1: You're writing my newsletter next week for me, Mike. I just steal your best (laughs) ideas and I write them up. What would you add?
13: I just took an Uber this morning. We're certainly paying more, but part of the frustration is coming from drivers. Driver pay isn't necessarily linked to what these riders are paying. Uber and Lyft decoupled that back in 2016. So the drivers might be paid extra for that surge pricing, but it's not necessarily reflecting the multiples that the riders are paying. I was in an Uber recently and the driver said, do you mind me asking what you're paying for this ride? We had this whole conversation about surge pricing. I was paying way more. We were kind of trying to I've uh, heard that track can do the math. Yeah,
2: I think oh, yeah. So they, they, there's
13: not a lot of visibility into what the drivers are making. And they're sitting there. This is a brand new driver. And she said, wow, I thought I'd be making a ton more. You're paying, you know, $80 for this ride. I'm only making X amount. So I think riders are a little bit confused on how much they'll be making and sort of the uh, consistency of, of what they're actually going to make in a week.
1: A quick final point on this, John. I've also seen some of these drivers wondering or speculating if Uber is charging riders more pocketing the difference and not paying it out you know the way so like this has become a big sort of talking point i guess
7: and the reason why it's structured this way kelly is because this was supposed to protect them on the downside right because riders were complaining hey these are too cheap uh i I need to make at least x amount of money so they said okay well we're going to pay you by you know time and distance okay great but now that things are surging and the prices are high they want the upside so hey it's tough to be Uber. All
1: right, that's very interesting. I do want to get to this general motor story, Kate, so I'll just get a quick comment from you on this. GM is looking to solve one of the biggest concerns about electric vehicles by sourcing U.S. lithium production, an investment in a company called Controlled Thermal Resources. They're hoping will yield domestically produced lithium in the next three years. Kate Rooney, is it going to work?
13: This definitely says something about them wanting to own the supply chain. They want their own sourced material, getting ahead of the idea that people care about the carbon footprint of not only the products themselves, but also the output of the supply chain. But I think too soon to tell. It's a multi-year deal. And they say sort of if this whole extraction process bears fruit, I think there is some uncertainty on, you know, if this lithium project will work and how uh, fruit-bearing it'll be, as they put it. So I think a little too soon to tell uh, for GM. What,
7: What, John, what? I mean, speaking of risk to a model, I mean, mining lithium in the United States, you think it matters maybe what political party is in power? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, (laughs) along
1: with uh, the local parties, the environmental concerns, all the rest of it. Kind of in this vein, Kate, just a quick comment as well about the fact that Bitcoin mining has actually become a little bit easier to do lately after the China crackdown because people have gone to less power or cheaper power sources and the Bitcoin miners are flying. But do you think it's just kind of a one time move?
13: I mean, yeah, exactly. Speaking of mining, this goes back to the China reaction of shutting down miners. So what happened there is the Bitcoin network itself lost about half of what's known as a hash rate. That's sort of the computing power it takes to mine Bitcoin. That makes it easier. There's less competition to mine that new Bitcoin. So the difficulty dropped. There's some estimates uh, They say it was down by about 27%, which would be the largest drop ever. So it doesn't really affect the price of Bitcoin. But for the miners, the economics are way better. We were just in Texas talking to a ton of miners, and they were saying, yeah, this probably doesn't affect the price. But it's great for us. They don't have the competition from abroad. Now it'll be interesting to see sort of where these miners move after the fact.
1: And there's always been this debate, Mike, about whether you buy gold or the gold miners, and now we have do you buy the crypto or the crypto miners. (laughs) Uh, But I do want to talk some Amazon before we go here. Jeff Bezos last day as uh, CEO, Now, the best stock stat ever is the fact that Amazon shares are up 231,000% since the IPO in 97. So Mike, a quick thought on the stock here in the Andy Jassy era that's about to begin.
8: Just, I mean, almost unthinkable in in terms of the the wealth accumulation over that period of time. What's fascinating to me about this handoff, in a way, is that there is no IPO prospectus more studied than the 1997 Amazon IPO prospectus. Mm -hmm. There's no kind of, you know, statements of principle by any founder or CEO, I don't think, in the current age, that's been studied more closely than Jeff Bezos. So in other words, if he had the secret sauce, does everyone have it now? Or does that lower the stakes for this transition because? It's kind of a machine uh, at this point that he clearly feels is okay to hand off, and uh, you know I just I, I, I get that the investors have been a little bit hesitant. One of the reasons the stock has been has been stuck for a while, but I'm not sure it changes the game entirely for the company.
1: Although John, maybe that adds or de-risks the fact that apparently there have been a lot of other executive departures in the past 18 months or so.
7: Yeah, I mean Jassy's still around. I just love the Jeff Bezos baseball card on this one. Never has there been a value creator like this. 27 years as founder and CEO took this company from zero to 1.7 trillion dollars in market cap. Nobody else is even close. The closest is Zuckerberg, who just crossed, uh, what was it, a trillion last mm-hmm.
1: month. Amazing. And uh, we all got a front row seat to it. I think there's Amazon stuff on my doorstop right now. Uh, John Fort, Mike Santoli, Kate Rooney, thank you all very much for rapid fire today. Still ahead, what do waste management, real estate and education all have in common? They are all sectors that could feel the most pressure as hourly wages hit a record high. We'll dig into the names next. Welcome back. Here's a striking stat from the June jobs report. Average hourly earnings were up 3.6% year on year, bringing wages up to a record high of over $30 an hour. According to Morgan Stanley, it's showing no signs of slowing down. They've identified industries where companies face high risks from these labor cost pressures. And joining me now is Adam Vergadamo. He's head of U.S. thematic investing and equity strategist at Morgan Stanley. Adam, it's good to have you. So a lot of these are retail and restaurants, right?
10: Absolutely. Right. That's that's where you would expect some of the pressures to show up just based on how important the cost of labor is to the operating model and how thin margins are at the end of the day.
1: What are some of the more surprising places it's showing up?
10: You know, so I guess some of the more surprising places you previewed it in your in your uh, intro here, I think waste management among them, education services, I think if there's an important distinction to make within the restaurants or the lod- lodging space, for instance. You have to be really careful to separate out franchisors versus non-franchise models, right? Who's exposed to operational risk, who is not? Casinos are much better insulated, we think, than traditional lodging firms or lodging REITs from this. So there's really a lot of nuance to measuring this, both in terms of labor intensity and where wages are are rising. Why
1: are casinos relatively better off?
10: Well, casinos are better off because they're just less labor-intensive. Or put another way, they make significantly more profit per employee, right? If I have, let's call it $60,000 in EBITDA on average of profit per employee, I have more cushion to absorb rising wage pressures than I do if I'm operating a business model that produces, say, $15,000 in EBITDA per employee. I'm just more exposed. So casinos are better off there. The other thing that our gaming and lodging analyst, Thomas Allen, does a good job of pointing out is particularly Las Vegas casinos. It's one of the only games in town for employment. So if you're not working and one of these employments hmm. are on the strip, it's harder to find a job elsewhere. So the bargaining power shifts a little bit in that local market, is how we uh, is how we think about it.
1: So I would, you know, if I'm an investor, I look across here and I go, okay, maybe I don't want exposure, but then I see names like Chipotle, Under Armour's even been, you know, performing better lately. I mean, are there reasons why these companies can do well because people give them credit for, you know what, this is gonna be a passing issue or an issue that you deal with, but ultimately you have strong demand versus an issue where they have to make some existential changes?
10: Well, I, I think that's the debate, right? And the reality is we don't really know. So what we tried to do in the report was systematically screen the broader equity universe on three metrics, Kelly. One was that labor intensity I mentioned. The 2nd using BLS data that was very granular by industry, how fast are wages rising? They're not rising every place at the same pace and that matters. And the third metric is an expectations game, right? You know as well as I do, markets are about expectations relative to reality. So we wanted to look at where margin expectations are high, both relative to history, for the margin accretion expected over the next year or so, to kind of suss that out across these those three metrics, to to get at exactly that dynamic. Where is it perhaps priced? Where is it not? And the other lingering thing that we don't know the answer to, but why we brought in those margin forecasts. What's demand what is the elasticity of demand your last speaker series was talking about uber and trying to pass along some of that price elasticity of demand came up a couple of times that's the potential offset we know companies aren't trying to sit still but what we wanted to do was help relatively quantify where the risks are or where the hurdles are perhaps higher where those actions would be more necessary to take price to offset
1: it's interesting because even though uber is not on the list in a way it faces the biggest challenge to this not in the traditional maybe profit margin sense although i'm sure that is part of it, but just simply from users trying to figure out if the service is is valuable for them to use, period?
10: Well, I think any place where you've got just a labor shortage that's going to pressure the the, the kind of the cost of goods and that elasticity of demand, that's going to be an open question. I mean, here's a statistic for you to consider. Aggregate wage earnings in the U.S. right now are up a little bit north of two and a half percent of where they were prior to COVID. The number of employees working is down five percent. So you can do the math on that to say people are getting paid more and companies are not going to sit still. Public companies in particular have high margin expectations. Next on the S&P is expected to have margins about 100 basis points above all-time prior peak. To meet those expectations, companies can't sit still. So you need to think about where that elasticity of demand will be as an investor, and where that labor intensity could potentially be a material headwind.
1: Yeah, and maybe it means either lower stock prices, lower profit margins, or uh, you know, more ordering from iPads at the table at the restaurant <laughs> drives me crazy. Adam, <laughs> thanks very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Adam Vergadamo with Morgan Stanley. Still ahead, just in time for the 4th of July, beef prices are on the rise, so your hamburgers could cost just as much as those Beyond Burgers. Is price parity enough to push carnivores to alt-meat? That's next. Welcome back. Just in time for those hamburgers on the barbecue this weekend. Beef prices are on the rise. That could be good for alt meat companies. Kate Rogers is here with the details, Kate.
14: Hey, Kelly. Well, we all know that prices are going up everywhere, and beef, of course, is no exception. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average price for ground beef was $4.70 per pound in May. That's up nearly 3.2 percent from December, up nearly 10 percent from May of 2019. Beef steaks even higher, up 13 percent from December and 17 percent from May of 2019. Supply chain issues, labor woes, and more have contributed to these ongoing price hikes. So could this be a win for the alternative meat companies like Beyond and Impossible? They've, of course, been historically a bit pricier, but with inflation hitting traditional beef prices, parity is drawing even closer. Take a look at these Nielsen charts. Through the end of May, average unit prices for fresh beef were $6.20, while average unit prices for meat alternatives were $6.22. For seafood alternatives, $4.05. Both Impossible and Beyond have been expanding their retail footprints and working to bring down pricing. Impossible in February cut its suggested retail pricing by 20 20% for the first time. Beyond Meat also has value packs of its products in the cookout classic option. Beyond's also teamed up with DoorDash to deliver its grilling kits on-demand delivery this summer. So if prices are dropping in, you don't even have to leave the house, that could be a win. Kelly,
1: back over to you. Not using the alt meats, although I know a lot of people who are very grateful for them uh, because it fits with dietary needs and all that. How do they get seafood cheaper per unit? What kind of, uh, th- th- that can't be salmon burgers.
14: I was surprised to see that. So that's the average price per unit. But we had that alt seafood company uh, on your show. I believe that was last week. And they said that they were achieving price parity with some of the more expensive traditional seafood products, but they couldn't undercut and get their prices quite as low. So that's average price per unit. They don't specify what type of alt seafood that is. But I did think it was interesting because it is much cheaper by about $2. All right, Kate, thank you very much. Kate
1: Rogers, enjoy your barbecues, everybody. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.